If you're new to New Hope, uh, first of all, welcome. Glad to have you here. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, you're going to find some around you in the seat around you, probably in the rack in front of you. And um, feel free to use your Bible on your phone or if your iPad, if you have that with you electronically. However you want to open it up, but turn to Acts chapter 5, if you would. Make your way there. And um, you'll see these passages up on the screen as well, so you can follow along that way. I want to pray with you before we jump into what is an incredibly hard text. And not because um, it's so difficult to understand, it's difficult to uh, interpret. And, and many people have been confused by it. I talked to a guy last night who said to me, when he first became a believer in Jesus, this was the passage that caused him to go on the side rails for a while, uh, just looking at the things that are going on there and being confused by it. Many people have been confused by it. So before we jump into the text, let me pray with you. Father, what we ask for right now is clarity and an ability to focus, regardless of what's going on outside this auditorium. We ask in this moment you allow us to be fully present and that we would encounter you in a a fresh way. Perhaps just allow our our spirit to quiet and to hear from you. Maybe maybe you need to rock the world of somebody here today. I, I don't know, Father. Only you know what's going on in our hearts. Perhaps you just want us to have a fuller and a better understanding of your purity and your righteousness. And if that be the case, God, we would be happy with that, just to encounter you in that way. So I pray that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, who does indeed indwell this auditorium, because your people are here, we would ask that you give us eyes to see. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Um, just a thought for you as we step into especially this text. The, the teachings here at New Hope are informational for one, obviously, and instructional, but it's not intended to stop there. If, if all we experience is left at the door or at the car or in the restaurant this afternoon and we don't take it any further than that, we've failed. I, I've failed and you've failed. I'll just put it out there because God's word continues to reverberate. And so here's the responsibility. As good as a teacher might be, don't relinquish the privilege to a teacher of instructing you. Your application in your own life is between your copy of God's Word and your walk with God and God Himself to apply it to your life. So for moving forward as you explore hard passages especially, I would encourage you to go deeper still. Go back into it this week. Try and really process what's going on there because I think you're going to find yourself wrestling through this text this morning. Here's the way we're going to approach it. Dr. Luke, when he wrote this down, the book of Acts, uh, wrote it from this zoom-in, zoom-out perspective. He, he goes in really close for focus, and then he gives us a 30,000-foot view so that we can understand what's going on. So from the zoom-out view right now, he's, he's looking at the holiness of God and God's passion for the purity of His people, for the purity of His church. You might remember last time we were together, we left off in Acts chapter 4, obviously prior to Easter, and in Acts chapter 4, where we were at, uh, the individuals we were watching in the church were taking seriously what Jesus had asked them to do. And as a result, the church was just exploding. Thousands and thousands, up to about 10,000 people by this point, have come to the church and have professed faith in Jesus Christ. And along with that, persecution began. 
Because anytime something grows that rapidly, it's going to draw attention. And the leaders of Israel began noticing how many people were being part of this fellowship of Jesus. And so the persecution really began to ramp up. And as a result of that, there were things that were said to the leaders of the church. Specifically, the leaders of Israel said to the leaders of the church, you're not going to talk about Jesus anymore. They convened the Supreme Court. They called them in and said, you're not going to teach in the name of Jesus. You're not going to talk about Jesus. You're not even going to declare the name of Jesus publicly. So the name of Jesus became politically incorrect. The Supreme Court handed down an edict. Now, as you'll see when we get in a couple weeks further into Acts chapter 5, the disciples, the apostles, didn't listen to that. They went ahead and started talking about Jesus and watched the response. It says in Acts 5.41, you'll see this on the screen, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now, how good is their attitude? Look at that. They have been persecuted for the sake of Jesus, and they're happy about it. Great attitude. So that's the leaders. How does the church body itself respond? What do they do when they start watching the leadership of their church being persecuted? Well, what we noticed in Acts chapter 4 is this greater cohesion. The body becomes unified. There's, there's a joint purpose of taking care of each other. So when Acts chapter 4 ended, we started seeing the unity of the church really coming together strong as a result of the opposition. And one evidence of the unity was the way in which they were taking care of each other by selling properties and things that they had and putting it in a common fund to help people who had less than, trying to meet needs. Because they were discovering if the Holy Spirit is at work, giving is a blessing, it's not a burden. So that's the way they're approaching it. Now, here's where Dr. Luke takes us for this zoom in. At the very end of Acts chapter 4, verse 36, He gives us a face-forward example of what generous giving looks like. And he goes to verse 36 by saying this, Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So right away he's got this example of a generous giver. We've got this guy who's from the island of Cyprus, He's apparently from the tribe of Levi. We're told he's a Levite there. And this is the same Barnabas who encouraged Paul. He's the one who sells a piece of land. And he places it at the apostles' feet. Now, not to draw attention to himself, merely for the act of giving. Jesus himself said, it's better to give than to receive. I know many of you have heard that. So meaning that you get more when you give than what you get when you get. It's just a more complicated way of saying it. You're just really blessed when you give. So here's the zoom out. From the big picture view when Acts chapter 4 ends, what we see really clearly, the evidence is that Satan failed. Satan came against the church and attacked the church from the outside, trying to silence the witness, and he couldn't silence them. He completely failed. But we know when Satan fails, he just redirects his strategy. So he changes his effort. His first approach, attack from the outside. His new approach is going to be attack from the inside. There are two characteristics of Satan. Let me show you the first one on the screen. First Peter 5.8. Peter said, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Lions are not quiet when they're roaring, right? So they're overt, very extraneous in what they do. They're coming in the very, very obvious. That's the overt side of Satan. Look at the cloaking side of Satan. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. 
Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So you've got the two sides of Satan, the overt side, the cloaking side. What you're about to see here is the cloaking side. Barnabas has set the tone. He's shown through his action what a generous Christ follower looks like. Ananias is a person you're about to learn of who is apparently filled with envy. Go forward with me to Acts chapter 5 and verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. If you could add a musical score to the Bible, you'd go right here, dun, dun, dun. If you know the story at all, you know what's coming. This is the setup for a very tragic situation in the lives of these two people. Now, the Bible in its original text doesn't have a bracket around the word but. I put that, you see that on the screen. That's because Dr. Luke wants us to understand this word but, it's a hinge point. He's contrasting Ananias with Barnabas. He wants us to see what Barnabas did in contrast to what Ananias has done. So it's this really sharp contrast. Like Barnabas, they sell property. Unlike Barnabas, they keep back some for themselves. I'm just going to step out of the limb here, and, and you check me on this. I'll, I'll check in eternity someday whether or not what I say is accurate. But I think both Ananias and Sapphira are believers in Jesus. I think they're both Christ followers. Why would you be part of the church at this point in time in the first century when they're undergoing persecution if you weren't all in? As a matter of fact, you see Peter speaking to them about sinning against the Holy Spirit. How can you do that if you're not a believer? Uh, I've got a few reasons why I think they're believers here, but let's move forward with the thought. They sell a piece of real estate. They pretend to give the full price for distribution to be shared among the community. Hear me on this. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the New Testament will you find that believers are commanded to give all that they have to give to the support of the church. If you have money for yourself, that's not a sin, right? We're supposed to take care of our family, take care of our needs. There's no sin in keeping money for your own use. Peter's going to make that really, really clear when you get to verse 4. So if, if you're confused by that part, don't be. I'll help you to understand that. Their giving, like all New Testament giving, is completely voluntary. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 helps us to understand that. Look with me on the screen at that verse. Just a strong reminder from Paul when he wrote this. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. We're not giving under compulsion, so he says not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. So we go to the offering box today. If you give to the church, you're giving out of joy for what Jesus has done for you, not because somebody's expecting it of you. It's between you and God. Now, the principles are giving are really, really clear in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. If you've never looked at it before, I encourage you to do that. So, nowhere in the Bible is anyone told to give everything that they absolutely have. And nowhere in the Bible are you told to lay your offerings at the pastor's feet, okay? Just so we're clear, you can do it if you want to, but you're not told to do that. This is an action by which they submit themselves to the apostles, putting themselves under their leadership. So here's what we are seeing. There's some intentional deception going on here, and it's rotten to the core. And if the overt sin is lying attempting to cause people to believe something that's not really going on, here's what we want to understand. There's always a sin behind the sin. 
Men, that's familiar to you if you've been in the study in the last couple weeks we've been talking about that. There's sin that's deeper behind the sin that you see on the surface. So what's the sin that's going on here? The more destructive sin is hypocrisy. There's a deeper sin than just the lie on the surface. And it's driven by a need. And the need is for status. They want the approval of men. They want to be thought of as spiritual. So Ananias and Sapphira are trying to do something just like Barnabas, but they're holding it back. They want to appear as more spiritual than they are. Do you know that hypocrisy always drew the sharpest rebuke from Jesus? Let me take you to Scripture and show you that, just an example of that. Matthew 6, and this is Jesus speaking, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. When therefore you give alms, meaning donations, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be honored by them. See, hypocrisy is so ugly in the sight of God, Jesus actually warns. Jesus actually says, hell will be populated by hypocrites. Matthew 24, you can check that out yourself. He talks very strongly against hypocrites. I want to clarify for you as we move forward what a hypocrite actually is from a biblical view, but I'll come back to that in just a minute. I came across this quote from a theologian earlier this week, and I don't know his name, I don't know the source, but I just wanted you to see how eloquently he stated this about hypocrites. He said it this way, they parade a spiritual beauty they do not possess. A really eloquent way of stating it. Somebody who's putting on display something that is not real about who they are. Let's move forward with the story with these thoughts. Peter does the confronting because he's the spokesman for the apostles. So when we come into verse 3 and Peter begins speaking to Ananias, understand these individuals have recognized the apostles are the leader of the church. They've submitted themselves to them. They've put money at their feet. Barnabas is a great example of that. So Peter, being the spokesman for the apostles, begins speaking. And here's what he's aware of that's going on. I just even have to whisper the word. Embezzlement. He's noticing embezzlement is going on among this community of believers. Now, if we recognize that the Holy Spirit is present among us, would we agree on that, church? The Holy Spirit is here this morning? Because God's people are here. Not in the woodwork, God's Spirit is present in the auditorium because God's people are here. The same is true in the first century. The Holy Spirit is present. This biblical community has gathered, and Peter recognizes there's something going on here that's ugly. He knows this action is a lie. We're not told how he knows Apparently, because the Holy Spirit has revealed it to him. A lot of Holy Spirit activity going on at this moment in time. And he knows that Ananias has not given his full commitment. The offering is an affront to God. Move forward with me into what Peter says, verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? Now we zoom back out for just a minute, recognizing what's going on here. Ananias has one foot in the biblical community and one foot in the things of the world. He's still attached to the things that he says he was giving over to God. He hasn't surrendered this. So when Peter says in verse 3, you are keeping back some of the price of the land, I want to be really clear about what's going on here. I told you earlier, we have to assume that they made a pledge 
let me show you how I believe they made a pledge. Because of the phrase that's used here is nosfidzo. And this is one of three Greek words in your notes this morning, but you see it on the screen as well. It means to put aside something for yourself, but not in a good way like a savings account. It means embezzlement. Nosfidzo is used of this action of pilfering. Well, we can't embezzle from ourselves, right? If it's ours, it's ours. So if you're embezzling, that means you're taking something that belongs to someone else to use it for your own purposes. Now here's where this story takes an interesting turn. This word nosfidzo is only used two times in the Bible. I don't know if you're aware of it, but the Old Testament, the ancient part of the Bible, is written in Hebrew originally, but there was a translation that was done years later called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is the Greek form of the Old Testament. There's an individual who's written about in Joshua chapter 7 by the name of Achan. And Achan was part of this community of believers who were following God. They went in and conquered a city, and God gave them very clear instructions. When you go into such and such city, the things that you plunder from the city, when you bring them back, they belong to the community of the Israelites. It is not for your own individual use. Well, Achan decided to nosfidzo. And he took some of the jewels that he found, and he stuffed them under the family sofa to keep them for himself. God called him out on it. Nosfidzo is used only in that story and in this story. I think what Dr. Luke is doing here is he's drawing a parallel between Achan and Ananias, who both suffered the same outcome. So that's one Greek word. Here's the next one. This one that's used of lying, you'll see it on the screen, is talking about an attempt to deceive. We know that's what lying is, but Peter takes it a step further. He says in verse 3, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. You're not just lying. You're lying to God. It's not as though you're just lying to the biblical community. You're lying to the Spirit of God. My experience, church, just speaking from Mark Kring's view, I've, I've been in professional church ministry or parachurch ministry since I was 23 years of age. I finished college, Bible college, and flight school, and at 23, I stepped into staff on a parachurch organization staff. So I've seen all this stuff up close and personal, both in church and parachurch, watching how people rise and fall very close and sometimes at a distance. Individuals, especially leaders, who rise and fall. And I want to tell you, every single time it happens, it is incredibly ugly. And it breeds spiritual disaster when moral failure creeps into the biblical community. Pastors and leaders who get involved in moral failure can absolutely decimate a church. We just saw this last year in 2014 here in the United States, a church of 27,000 people which is absolutely decimated because of the moral failure of a pastor who embezzled from the church. And when it hit the public airwaves, it absolutely destroyed the church even though they had 13 campuses. That's what happens when Satan works his way in. So Peter doesn't just stop by saying lying. The Greek expression, when he goes further and he says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit, the Greek frame of it is actually, why did you belie? Meaning you have falsified the presence of the Holy Spirit in this place. Acts is all about the presence of the Holy Spirit working through God's people. What he's saying to Ananias is, you've even falsified the presence of the Holy Spirit. Your action, in effect, denied His presence among this biblical community. Why did all this happen? 
because he allowed the deception from the deceiver to enter into his heart. Satan attacked from the outside. Now Peter's calling him out and saying, this is happening inside. Satan has entered into the Christ community. See, this is much more than just a story about real estate. This is spiritual warfare, and Peter recognizes it. Let's move forward into the story. It says in verse 4, While it remained, Peter speaking, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. We've already established that when we give to the church, we give voluntarily, right? It's not under compulsion. It's because of what God has laid on our heart and what we've agreed with Him to give. The tragedy or the, the horror of this story is that the lie was completely unnecessary. That's why Peter said what he did in verse 4. Why it remained unsold, wasn't it yours? I mean, you hold the title indeed to it, Ananias. It's your land. Nobody made you do this. There's no church rule saying you've got to sell your property. He's now operating under the law. So in other words, nobody forced you to bring your money here. We do this because of joy. Not because of compulsion. Now, Peter's just laying it right out there for him very, very clearly. Now, if you're Ananias and you've come into the church auditorium and you're laying your money at the pastor's feet, you're thinking probably in his mind, man, people are going to really like me. Look at what I'm doing. I made this pledge and I'm going on display. I'm putting my money out there. Do you not think in this moment he has to be absolutely stunned to know that he's being called out like this? to see what's going on, that it's recognized the ugliness of his heart? Watch with me in verse 5. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. Now, perhaps you're thinking right now, whoa, wait, especially if you're new to church. I'm left with trying to comprehend a God whom you keep telling me is merciful and is patient, and is long-suffering. It seems like no grace. It seems like no mercy whatsoever. I mean, couldn't God just give him like a limp? Or leprosy or something? Why so severe? What's going on here? Just hold that thought for a minute. I'll come back to that. I am speculating that Peter did not know this would be the result. Nothing like this has ever happened before. No one has ever seen this. Matter of fact, you won't see it again in the New Testament. This is a one and only time where you see someone drop dead because they've been called out on the sin that's going on in their life. I'm just speculating. I think Peter didn't know this was going to happen. But more important than that, whether I'm right or wrong on that issue, there's an important verb that Luke uses here. It's your last Greek word this morning. And the word that he uses, I can't even begin to pronounce myself, but it's talking about breathing one's last. You'll see it in your notes. And here's why it's important to understand it. It's only used a couple times in the New Testament. And it's always associated with the judgment of God. Matter of fact, when Herod, King Herod, drops dead and the Bible says he's consumed with worms from the inside out because of his evil life, the same word is used See, from my view, and I think yours is going to be the same as you watch this story, God killed Ananias. Peter cannot cause Ananias' heart to stop beating. The ultimate cause of death is God's, dare I say it, judgment on a believer. 
We want to be really clear that we understand what's going on here when we start using the word judgment against a believer. Some people have come to this passage and try and soften what's going on here by saying, this is physical, Mark. What you're looking at, this is a person who's had a heart attack. It's been brought on by this terrifying realization of his exposure. He's got a bad ticker. The the shock and the shame of being found out has devastated him. Psychological, physical causes aside, those are secondary issues. His heart stops beating. His breath leaves him. Does God control our breath? Does God control our heart? God controls everything. He knows when our last minute will be. See, the ultimate connection that Luke is trying to make here is that God is the agent. You'll see this very clearly in the text. And now the question immediately will be this. That seems so harsh, so in keeping out of the gospel. It doesn't look like the God of grace. And especially that it's happening through Peter. I mean, he's the guy that denied Jesus in the garden. Wasn't his sin just as bad as this guy's sin? He's just bringing an offering. Here's the sobering truth. Sometimes God has to discipline those whom he loves. Sometimes God has to take drastic measures. And we're not talking about a person losing their salvation. That's not what I'm implying here. We're talking about God bringing discipline against someone who's living egregiously in sin. So God is exposing the activity of this individual. See, death can be God's ultimate form of physical discipline. You see it throughout the New Testament. John writes about this in 1 John where he talks about God using death for those who are sinning. He actually says it this way, there is a sin unto death. We're not even told what it is. People speculate all the time. We don't even know what it is. Here's why, though. What's more important is why. Jesus died for this church. He wants His church pure. The Holy Spirit of God indwells this place. The Holy Spirit of God indwells the first century church. So let's step it up a notch if you think this hasn't been intense enough. If you're looking for Happy Sunday, this isn't it, by the way. Okay. God's going to step it up a notch to help us to understand, here's the truth of this. If, if our walk with God is all about God pursuing our heart, God's going to do what God's got to do to make sure His people are fully following Him. Meaning He wants nothing to stand in the way between our relationship with him and his relationship with us. So we've got a responsibility, our side of the equation. And again, hear me, I'm not talking about keeping your salvation. I'm talking about God's standards for our life, keeping things in right relationship. You don't have to do anything further to maintain your salvation. It was given to you as a gift from Jesus Christ. Praise God. It is the grace of God. You can't earn your salvation. It's given to you. So you don't have to maintain your salvation. God keeps things in order by disciplining His people. So here's the light in which we're to understand this, and it comes from verse 5. It says this, Great fear came over all those who heard it. Pay very close attention to that phrase. This is an astonishing sense of God's judgment. So verse 5 leads right into verse 6 to help us understand how they saw it in the first century. Verse 6 says this, The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. 
Verse 6 is a really strong indicator that they saw the hand of God in this. For one, they wrap him up immediately, and the Scriptures say they carried him out, meaning outside the walls of Jerusalem. Only kings and prophets were buried inside the walls of Jerusalem, and then very, very few. Most people were buried in tombs that they already owned in the cemetery outside the walls of Jerusalem. But criminals and suicides and those who had received God's judgment were buried very, very hastily with no ceremony whatsoever. Now, in the Middle East, they typically try and bury somebody within 24 hours, even today, because of the climate. But here we see within a span of only a couple hours, and they don't even let his wife know what had happened. In other words, nobody's celebrating this guy's passing. He's seen as someone who has suffered the judgment of God. So we're told in verse 7, this interval of three hours went by. We're not told who's present. I'm assuming the apostles, because the money was coming in and being laid at their feet. I don't even know if this was during a church service. Luke doesn't give us those kind of details. Here's his goal. His goal is to point out the outcome of the deception. So move forward into Sapphira's story. Verse 8, And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And you want her to say no, right? But she doesn't. And she said, Yes, that was the price. I want you to see something. In between the question, in between Peter's question and her response, I think the door has been opened. The door has been opened for the opportunity to repent, to, to identify, yeah, that, that, that's, that's not really the price, Peter. That was part of my husband's scheme. No, apparently it was her scheme also. She worked with him in this. They, they planned together. They chose to continue the deception. So she joins the conspiracy. She's going to join him in another way. Verse 9 And Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. Now remember Peter's role here. Peter's role is to confront, he's not the judge. That's God's responsibility. Peter can't make her heart stop breathing. Only God can do that. But Peter knows. He knows what's going to happen to Sapphira beforehand because it just happened to her husband. She's about to be carried out feet first. Apparently, he senses God's judgment in the room. He feels the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so I see verse 9 with not this guy who's doing this robotic, non-emotional thing when he says, why is it? I think he's feeling the pain of somebody within his church saying to them, why? Why is it? I think this is excruciating for him. Because what he's recognizing is Satan has taken a foothold. You're, you're going to put God to the test? You're going to test a holy God to see whether or not he's tolerant of your sin and how far you can take him? The Greek interpreters actually took it that way when he wrote it by saying, she's putting him to the test to see how far she can push God to the limit. You're willing to test a holy God? Peter's answer is, he's not tolerant. What we're witnessing here, church, is divine punishment. Divine discipline. And if it's uncomfortable, it should be. It makes me uncomfortable. It's incredibly uncomfortable. It should make us squirm because we serve a holy God. And we're very, very familiar with the message of grace, which we should be, that God died to forgive us of our sins. 
but we also stand before a holy God, and so we stand before him witnessing this with fear and trembling, watching that he can discipline when he wants to discipline. And sometimes it's in little ways, and sometimes it's in big ways. Let's move forward with the passage. Watch what happens. Verse 10, And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. Not exactly a passage you would teach at Easter, right? It's going to make very non-church people very, very uncomfortable. I, I, I would look at the passage like this and say, Who wants to sign up for this? Don't you kind of wonder as you're reading this when those young men came back in the building for the third time wondering if they're going to find somebody else on the floor? What's up with Peter? Don't mess with him when it comes to offerings. Man. Okay, hear me on this. One of the great proofs of the authenticity of the Bible that you hold in your hand, you're holding God's Word, whether electronically or in paper form right now, one of the great proofs of the authenticity of the Bible is that the Bible doesn't omit troublesome passages. It's not all happy, clappy stuff. There's really hard things there. How much self-examination do you think took place following the deaths of these two people? We don't see it again in the New Testament because I think God laid the standard down and said, you stand before a holy God. Don't mess with my spirit. My spirit inhabits my people. And it's in my church. One aspect of discipline is that it deters other people from sinning. Peter wrote something, the old Peter, aged just before he died, looking back on situations like this. He talked about church discipline a lot, but look with me at 1 Peter 4, what he said about judgment from God. He said, when judgment begins, it's going to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? He's talking about believers. The judgment has to begin within the household of God first. Hold those thoughts. While the content of this story itself is fascinating, but we've, we've come to the end of the story, by the way. While the content of it is fascinating, I certainly don't want to diminish the strength of the text, trying to see every little nuance in there. What we need to see is the strength of it, and verse 11 is the strength of it. Did you notice the ending? Great fear came over the whole church and all those who heard about it, meaning everyone outside the church who was not part of the biblical community, people who heard about these things, who were not Christ followers. Shock and awe about the activity of God among them. It's a repeat. Did you notice that? It's the same thing that was said about her husband. Why is Sapphira's end bracketed just like Ananias's? It's not by chance. When a writer of the New Testament repeats something within just a couple of verses, it's because they really, 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 really want us to get it down. God is bracketed to this. He said, this is going on their tombstone. As a result of what happened to them, great fear came over the whole church. See, you and I cannot pass this off as a unique phenomenon of the ancient church. It can't just be unique to the first century. Here's why. At New Hope, just like at the church of the first century, the church is the realm of the Holy Spirit. We've already established that. 
This is where God's Spirit dwells among His people. He inhabits the praises of His people. We just praised Him. We're promised by God's Word that He's present. So think about these people. By the power of the Holy Spirit, these people worked miracles. We've already seen the man who was born disabled, restored, and completely walking whole. Next week, you're going to get to see amazing miracles just by Peter and John walking through a crowd. The Holy Spirit is working miracles among them. They have witnessed fearlessly. And as a result, they've been blessed with incredible growth. Just like New Hope, they keep expanding and getting bigger and bigger. And people are coming to Christ. So the Holy Spirit is present among us just like He's present among them. Here's the hard part about this passage. When all is said and done, there is no comfortable solution for what we just read. We, on our human side, would like to see them just kind of walking around with a limp or leprosy. God says, you stand before a holy God. And I want you to know, you don't mess with my spirit. So the spirit of the holy God is not to be taken lightly. That means the same spirit that is giving our church its growth is the same spirit who demands purity among his people. So here's what I learned. This is Mark Kring. You may have taken away different applications, but here's what I learned from these ancient Jewish people. God means for us to fear hypocrisy. He absolutely does. Because hypocrisy is the sin in front of the sin. If we stop and think about what drives hypocrisy, we're ultimately going to have to land on pride. What else would cause Ananias and Sapphira to make a pledge to say, we're going to give this, but only give this? Because they wanted people to think highly of them. So pride is driving their hypocrisy. So the lesson I'm taking away from Luke is fake, authentic God relationship is a really fearful thing. God does not take that lightly. That's why, lightly, that's why Jesus says in Matthew 24, hypocrites are going to inhabit hell. So let's clarify what a hypocrite really is. I told you we'd come back around to that. The literal Greek use of that word, and it's misconstrued today greatly in the English language. A hypocrite was used of someone who was hired to step onto a platform as an actor in the Greek community, a a professional employee, meaning someone who lived their life one way in society, but when they were hired to step onto stage, hypocrisis is the word, it, it was meant to represent someone who was intent was to cause people to believe there's something other than what they are, an actor. The phrase actually that's used with hypocrite in the Bible is to play the actor. That's the use of it. And it was transferred over to the church to represent someone who's playing a game, who's showing themselves to be one way before the biblical community, but in the world, they're another way. They're not authentic in their relationship with God. So I want to be really, really clear here. I don't want you to go out the auditorium being confused this morning. Do not think your failure this morning to reach your Christ-like goals in your life means you're a hypocrite. That's not how this is used. I have never in my life, myself included, met a believer who lives up all the time to the high goals that Christ has for us. We're human. That's why we need God's grace. We fall short. That is not what a hypocrite is. So if you feel like you're falling or you're stumbling all the time, don't think that makes you a hypocrite. Hypocrisy is the deliberate deception trying to make people think that we're different 
than what we really are. So this sin is motivated by pride, and that is Satan's specialty. That's what he used with Adam and Eve. Don't you know that you can be like God in the day that you eat of the fruit? You're going to think just like God. You're going to know good and evil just like God. So here's what I think Satan did with Ananias, probably Sapphira. Hey, look at, look at Barnabas. He doesn't deserve all that glory. He shouldn't have all that for himself. You've got land. You could do the same thing he did. Sell your land. Make people think that you're great. Let them see how spiritual you are. Come on. You deserve it. You ever heard Satan talk that way? He's great at it. He whispers those things, and it sounds so appealing. And he seeps in. For whatever reason, Ananias and Sapphira did not draw the line and say, Satan, be gone. They didn't come against him. They gave into it, so instead of resisting, they planned the strategy. So let's close this by zooming out. Here's what I understand about true faith, walking with Christ. Our true faith can be measured by the authenticity of our actions. We gather here today at 11 o'clock in the morning on a gorgeous spring day when any one of us could be out fishing on a stream or playing someplace other than being in church. Why are we here? Are we here out of compulsion, trying to impress someone else? Or are we here out of authenticity to worship the King of Kings because he's worthy? So we come away with this realization. What Luke is describing here is that following Jesus is not a matter of external conformity to fake religion, something that's not authentic, something that has religious expectation with it. It's really a matter of freedom in Jesus. And there's freedom in Jesus, right, church? Yeah, absolutely. So with that happy thought, let's close in prayer. Father, we recognize that you demand purity and holiness and righteousness. You, you just don't allow corrupt things in your presence. And that includes your church. So we will offer this back to you, Father, this song that we're about to sing to close out our time with you. During this service is meant for us to declare something to you. And we recognize that this relationship we have with you that permeates this church is to be represented by your demand for righteousness. And we don't want to be guilty of taking that lightly this morning. So I pray that you would seal these truths in our heart. If we're here as a Christ follower this morning, we know that we belong to you. Nothing can take that away or change that. But we recognize our responsibility to walk uprightly and justly, lest we incur your discipline in some form. Father, help us with a song that we're about to declare to make it true of us, to make it true of this church that you're blessing as a biblical community. It's in Jesus' name we gratefully praise you and all God's people said, Amen.